No, I'm Frank Bongiorno, and uh, I'm a historian at the Australian National University, and I'm here with Christine Wallace, who is also a historian in the School of History at the ANU, and we find ourselves in a very quiet National Library um, of Australia during the COVID-19 crisis. We'd normally, I guess, be sitting in a bustling, busy uh, foyer of the library with people coming in to look for inspiration in its marvellous collections. Um, it's still uh, got marvellous collections, it's still an inspiring place, but for the time being, um, we're not quite able to look at uh, uh, the normal ma wonderful manuscripts, books, newspapers and all those other juicy things that historians love. Uh, our topic today is recording uh, the experience of COVID-19 in Australia. And so we're obviously interested as historians in primary sources. We use them in the National Library regularly amongst its rich collections, um, particularly all those wonderful Australian manuscripts. And that got um, several of us thinking, okay, so what will be the sources of the future for anyone interested in um, the experience that uh, Australians are going through at the present time. So, Chris, um, are we going to remember this pandemic in 20, 30, 50 years' time? Frank, only if you folks start writing it all down. Um, you know, it's interesting how history gets recorded, written, how it ends up in books like that in the NLA bookshop how it ends up in the vast repositories of this building. Uh, if people did not record their experiences historically, there would be nothing for people like us to work with to write the histories. So we're in this incredibly historic moment and it would be terrific if thinking of people like us in the future who need uh, records, memories, reflections, details great and small, not just from you know politicians on the hill, but from people in their lounges in lockdown, uh, from people in kitchens trying to do things with unfamiliar ingredients because they can't get the usual ones. Uh, all the details, great and small, historians of the future need, and that depends very much on ordinary citizens recording their experiences of history as it's unfolding right now. People often underestimate, don't they, the ways in which their everyday lived experience will be of interest in the future. They sort of imagine that, you know, we're only going to be interested in Scott Morrison or, um, uh, you know... Uh, the, the chief medical officer or whatever, those people who are kind of the movers and shakers. But, you know, it's, it's often that intimate, lived, everyday experience that's the most elusive for historians in the future. And the sources are, are often the most precious. You know, when I think of, of you know, if go to perhaps something like the Spanish influenza um, epidemic of a century ago, um, letters and, and, and diaries, um, you know, which deal with that um, are absolute gold to historians. I mean, newspapers and official documents in some ways are a kind of dime a dozen for, for an incident like that. But if you can actually get a glimpse of what it's like in someone's house or someone's backyard in, uh, within a family situation in a crisis like that, it's uh, incredibly valuable, isn't it, to, to historians of the future? That, that's right, and there's a vast apparatus around recording what politicians do, what policymakers do. There are institutions committed to the specific purpose of recording and preserving and making available to future users, including historians, those kinds of materials. But yes, the absolute gold often for historians are the things that are happening on the ground. and. You know, people don't always realise that the things they're doing, the things they're living through in the little, medium and big ways 
uh, are all important. And if they don't record them, well, they're just not accessible for the future. So, you know, it begs the question, what are people doing? What could they and should they be doing to record things? So what's happening in your household to record the coronavirus era? Probably not enough. I mean, there'd be a lot of schoolwork going on, although a lot of it's going on online, of course. So I have a 14-year-old daughter, and all her lessons at the moment are happening online. Um, but, yeah, she's probably not producing, you know, those physical kind of, um, you know, school texts or exercise books that, I, you know, the historians use. I mean, I've got a student at the moment who does children's history, and one of the things that she's interested in is the childhood imagination. And uh, ex school exercise books and things like that are, are absolutely critical to her work. But I imagine for anyone who tried to, to write a history, as they probably will in years to come, of what it was like to be educated at, at home, to be schooled at home during COVID, that the, the records are often going to be electronic. And um, that's obviously a huge challenge, isn't it? For the, the so, so that's something to really think about at a time like this. What What's going to survive? So uh, someone like your 14-year-old daughter, 50 years ago even, she might have had pen pals in other places and be writing letters that could be preserved and end up, end up in archives and collections. Um, you're right, that's not the case now. And it's a real problem, particularly with cross-technology issues. Uh, there are ideas like recording a YouTube diary or preserving your Twitter stream, which is often a kind of fairly constant point of reference during your day. Uh, to recall things big and small. But those things may or may not survive. I, I like that really old-fashioned, incredibly appropriate technology pen and paper. Um, and it's something to think about. Should we be keeping diaries? Should we, should we be writing letters um, and somehow digitally preserving them as well? Or should we be printing out our emails and keeping at least a printed copy of that so that there's kind of a bit of a, an insurance policy on data for the future? But I think however people are doing it, uh, the more ordinary people, the more citizen level recording of what's going on can happen, the better it is. And eventually institutions like this one will come looking for that material. Uh, they'll come looking for the COVID-19 cookbook uh, equivalent because you know, there's some very unusual cooking going on at the minute. Uh, in a whole range of ways, if people can start recording and writing down how they're living, what they're doing, what adjustments they're making, and of course, then there's a tremendous personal drama of being ill, being under the threat of illness if you're in a, a threatened group, uh, experiencing loved ones getting ill, some surviving, some not. This is the absolute drama of humanity we're seeing now. Um, you know, you can look at horrific hotspots like New York, like Northern Italy, the drama and, and kind of sheer human emotion of that is something that is it's terrible, but it's also precious, and we need to somehow marshal it. Yeah, and capturing that emotional dimension is, is always hard for historians, isn't it? So, again, I guess historians have often turned to places like diaries and letters uh, in order to try and, you know, recapture that atmosphere, that, that, that emotionalism of, of a crisis. But um, I guess one of the advantages of the, situ the current situation and the kinds of technologies that we increasingly use to, to record our lives is that they're probably, you know, in some ways very well suited to capturing that, that emotional aspect. I mean, there's always going to be 
a translation problem from the lived experience to the, the, the recording of it, of course. But, you know, all those digital technologies, the visual technologies seem really well cal calculated in a way to, to capture aspects of the atmosphere. I mean, think of the ways in which, you know, a good YouTube video can really take you into a situation. I mean, yes, it can deceive, of course, inevitably, but it also has a real power, doesn't it, to take you into a, a particular set of circumstances, into a, an individual's biography, into the, the context in which they find themselves. I'm glad you mentioned the magic word biography. Yeah. Because it, it's so often the case that uh, readers will turn to biography rather than standard histories because in biography typically one more often finds the, the raw emotion, the, that kind of emotional dimension, uh, although there are great developments in history as a discipline with history of emotion actually coming to, to the fore recently. Um, but yes, you know, how do we capture it? I mean, what could families do? What could your family do? What could my family do more than we're doing now? I think your idea of YouTube is a great one. Um, I mean, kids now are using YouTube as their primary browser, not Google, for example. And the idea of having you know, a multi-focal point family diary, YouTube diary that was being compiled, probably not uploaded because it's a bit raw and, and, and now, isn't it? But, but something that you're, you're developing and accumulating and archiving for a family purpose, um, you know, that across communities and across the globe could be an incredibly powerful resource for historians and communities in the process of trying to recover from this. Because, you know, we're just going into this now. This is a crisis that if the Spanish flu of uh, 1918 plus a couple of years is any example to go by, we're going to be in this state on, off and on for two years. It's the long haul. There's going to be a lot of development in us as individuals and communities and that terribly challenging process of coming out of it. Being able to have the data, the recordings, the written accounts to look back on and work with is going to be so important for future history, but also in that near-term recovery sense. Yeah, that exemplary, that exemplary aspect's really important. I mean, we often underrate that um, in history, don't we? But the ways in which you know, having a good record of, for instance, the ways in which people cope and adapt um, to a, a crisis, um, you know, is, is, can often be incredibly valuable when you face a comparable crisis. I mean, one of the things we don't really have, as far as I can see, is a collective memory, a really strong collective memory of the Spanish flu. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, references to historical events I've found, you know, in recent weeks, so almost an intensification of that appeal to to history or to historical precedent. And but so much of it, I think, you know, have, it's often been quite, I think, um, misleading or inappropriate analogy. The World War II analogy I've often found, you know, really wanting, I think, in recent weeks. But it seems to me the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1919 is an obvious one, you know, an obvious comparison to make, given the nature of it. And yet, we don't, as a community, I think, have a really strong collective memory of it. it it's something which, has, if it's been passed down through the generations, it's been done in a very fragmentary way, perhaps in a confused way. It's been overshadowed, I think, by things like the two world wars and the depression. And so, you know, in, in a sense, we kind of
kind of owe it to ourselves to create, to forge some sort of, of archive that will uh, uh, you know, facilitate that kind of collective memory in the, the, the decades ahead when we may well need it. This is unlikely to be the last uh, pandemic that we face, um, given obviously the way that the world's going. That's true. And it, in fact, the current situation makes me think back on immediately prior recent uh, dramas on a smaller scale, MERS and SARS. Mm. Um, I personally don't have any kind of feel for that beyond news events because we're external to it. And I'm now thinking I, I'd actually like to go back even to those near recent examples. Mm. Um, but a, a couple of, you know, just off the top of my head, examples are of, of things that stick in my mind in the sense uh, reading, for example, Virginia Woolf's diary entry of going to uh, the place where she and Leonard Woolf were living during World War II and uh, they were out of town, they weren't there when it was bombed, but arriving back at the house and seeing it bombed so it was half exposed and their papers and, and life kind of on display. Um, more than any other aspect of World War II, that's the single kind of snapshot thing that sticks in my mind and it's from a diary. Yes. People write diaries. Write diaries. Maybe um, just do old-fashioned. There's nothing wrong with going out when you're next shopping and getting a, a good solid journal, maybe with hard cover, those ones that look really nice, little checks and things, and, and keeping a journal or a diary. Um, and getting and, one for the rest of the family to do their own yeah, version of. Absolutely. And it doesn't just have to be text. You can... You can you know, add all sorts of recipes and uh, uh, photographs can be added if you print off your photograph. There's all sorts of ways in which you can turn it into exactly. Quite uh, artists have the example yeah. of visual diaries, so yeah. so they'll get one of those and they'll do yeah. sketches. They'll take right. notes. They'll stick things in. Yeah. Perfect. So it's not as though you have to be a kind of Nobel Prize-winning writer to pull yeah. this off. There are lots of ways of doing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of reminded. I mean, I've obviously written on the 80s, and and there was a really concerted effort around the bicentenary of 1988 to get people to make these kinds of records of their year. There was actually a bicentennial diary that you could buy, a quite flash-looking thing that you could buy at the beginning of 1988. And the idea was that you'd kind of record your thoughts in it. And I've often felt that it would be great to actually gather some of those where people did it and to find out more about their experiences of living that particular year, which in a lot of ways was an unexceptional year, perhaps in Australian history compared to what we're going through. But we'd learned something, I think, quite powerful from doing that. And I remember when I was looking at this, because I was really interested in how people had lived that experience of the bicentenary, I found that the, the, the official historian of the bicentenary, a man named Dennis O'Brien, had actually um, written to hundreds of local newspapers around Australia, asking people to write to him of what they had done on the 26th of January 1988. And the records have survived in the National Archives, actually. I've made a little bit of use, but not as good as I could, because they're incredibly rich. And it just strikes me that, you know, th there's a real opportunity again, I think, for people to create this sort of material for themselves, but also for future historians who will, you know, I think benefit from that kind of slice of, of, of history that's otherwise really hard to capture. Well, there are some institutions, for example, I know Cambridge University Library has already put out a call to people in Cambridge 
to contribute exactly that sort of material for a collection they're going to put together. I don't think that's happened in Australia yet. There is one. I mean, there? there's certainly a group at Melbourne University which call themselves Melbourne History Workshop, um, and uh, they uh, have, have created um, a, a kind of a facility for this sort of archiving of people's everyday lives. So, I mean, there yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to reflect here. Will this change our, um, you know, the ways in which we kind of deal with with this sort of material? You know, that that you know, will we be creating? online repositories of a kind that perhaps have been a bit more haphazard in the past because we now have a kind of an event, a big event, that, that you know, has provided the occasion for that sort of collecting and, and, and uh, collating and archiving. Yeah. That's one example. I'm sure other institutions will eventually get there, but of course at the minute everyone's got to strip down staff because of the work at home thing, so it's a little difficult, but yes, that's, that's a really good what are you doing with all those emails that are arriving in your inbox from various organisations that kind of tell you how they're being affected? You know, I, I got one the other day from Copyright Agency Limited, for instance, and it, it struck me that, again, there's an ephemerality about these sorts of records that if, if we don't sort of keep them and archive them in a, in a systematic way, they could kind of be lost. I mean, they'll always be there somewhere, but not really in a place where, where future historians can, can get at them. Oh, that's a huge digital humanities challenge, isn't it? It's yeah. going to be a vast data mining, data yeah. mining operation of some kind that's going to be necessary yes. for that. All these born digital records that, um, you know... Well, that's why good old pen and paper is so great. You know, it's portable, it's cheap, um, it's the only thing that's actually secure. You know, the old story about the KGB going back to typewriters because that's the only thing that can't be hacked. Yes. Um, and I, I really strongly would urge people to write diaries, write letters. Um, there's, a, there's a whole kind of self-care aspect to doing this too, that, you know, you're locked down, you're frustrated, you're going mad, you're climbing up the walls. Just being able to write something down can be a tremendously powerful release, so on many levels. So if you write it down, you can capture it in various ways digitally as well. Then you've got an insurance policy, you've got it in the cloud. But having something written down and just the act of writing it, it's so novel these days. Give it a shot, people. Give it a shot. I hope I can still do it. I suspect my handwriting's not too flash these days. Oh, come on. You would have been beaten at school to beaten up your writing, Frank, I'm sure. The curse of script, it was called, wasn't it? Being able to do curse of script. The yeah. curse of script. The curse of script. The curse of too. script, yeah. We're still kind of... I mean, we know this is going to be remembered um, in, all, you know, in powerful ways for, for a long time. Um, but we, we don't know how yet, do we? And that, that provides a kind of... Um, and it, I mean, that, that's a part of the excitement of creating records, isn't it? And it's why diaries are so valuable to historians, because they're, if, they're, if they are a proper diary, they're always created in, in circumstances where the author doesn't know where it's go all going to, to end. I mean, that, that's you know, a part of the, the real immediacy that the diaries give us that a, a memoir or an autobiography doesn't. It's a much more artful shaping of, of, of a life. But I've been very, again, very struck by that in relation to COVID, that we, we, we know it's going to be important. I mean, I was involved in a, a survey um, with a colleague, Darren Penney, a couple of years ago, where we asked a, a, you know, a, big, a panel that his uh, social research company had formed, you know, what were the 10 most significant historic events that had occurred in their lifetimes? a panel of about two and a half thousand and uh, you know obviously 9-11 figured very prominently although the equivalent American survey had it more prominently than the 
our Australian one. Uh, for the oldest generation, though, it was World War II was number one, not not 9/11. We we kind of know that COVID's going to be up there, and I'm almost inclined to suggest to Darren that we have another go in in a couple of years' time because it'll be very interesting to compare. But as historians, we're interested in more than just you know which events. We're interested in the how, and that that's that's the the, the thing that's very undetermined and unformed at the moment, isn't it? How we're going to, and, and you know, clearly uh, Italians are going to remember this uh, in a very different kind of way to a Singaporean or an Australian. Yes, there'll be commonalities and important distinctions. The other thing is, we're just at the beginning of this, you know, just the sheer medical aspect of this is going to stagger on for at least a year. If you look back at the Spanish flu, there were three big waves of death in the first year. And, you know, as we go through lockdowns and then the restrictions are lifted a bit when the numbers look good and then slam down again when they get out of control and that happens a couple of times. But then we've got the economic consequences, which are going to be, to put it mildly, extremely challenging. So this story's got a long way to run. Yeah. Uh, the more citizens write it, the better it is for the future Franks and Chris's of the world. Absolutely. So I think everybody needs to get to it. Go to work. Go to work. Thanks a lot, Chris. Good talking Cheers. to you, Frank.